Now we are back considering our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Christology. Last time we were together, we considered the threefold office of Christ, that he is prophet, priest, and king, uh, and mainly how the threefold office of Christ relates to his ascension, him uh, rising and seating at the right hand of the Father, um, which he is doing now in his current session. And we learned many truths, uh, truths that uh, I, I was going to do a whole summarization, um, but it would have been uh, way too long, and there's too much depth uh, for me to just pick out every single thing, be- or pick out a few things, because I think every single thing is important. Um, but uh, essentially, what we see is um, the threefold office that Christ had on earth did not stop when he ascended and left earth. But he continued to be and continues to be a prophet, priest, and king in heaven. And he, and he takes those three offices and he gives them to us here. He extends those offices to us here on earth. So that we on earth are Christ's prophets, priests, and kings. Um, that's something that we learned. And this is sort of... Um, it sort of uh, leads us into what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, maybe even months. And that is all that what Christ won and does for us um, and all that Christ is in his humanity, he shares with us. And that's a beauty, beautiful truth about Christ is that all of what he has, he gives to us. You can think of, and it was said this morning, how the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church is likened to uh, a husband and a wife. And it's very much true how that is a, a, a picture in which the Bible lays out for us. And again, it's also true. Another one is that we are to liken the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church as uh, a head is to a body and how whatever the head receives it distributes down into the body and that's how we are to think of and that's how i want you to think of now the relationship between christ and his church at least for our studies it's a head and to the body so where do we go from here we're going to talk about for the next few months the grace that christ has the grace of christ the grace of jesus christ and this evening, um, to be honest with you, it's going to be a little uh, technical um, and a little bit difficult um, because much of what's going to be said tonight is going to be new. And, and anytime something is presented new, um, it, it might be a little, um, a little bit hard to really apprehend all of what's been saying. I'm, I'm going to try my best to use as many examples as possible. Um, however... Anytime we're talking about the person of Christ, one person who is the eternal son of God, who is truly divine, but also assumed a true humanity is deeply mysterious. And a lot of times we just have to leave it to mystery. Okay. Um, however, we're going to try our best to understand um, the grace of Christ, the grace of Christ. Uh, it was Thomas Aquinas who said that all of Christ's actions all of what Christ does is for our salvation. All of what he does is for our salvation. 
And in order for Christ to be the mediator between God and man, Christ needed to have grace. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 42, says, Why was our mediator called Christ? Answer, our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure, and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king, and of his church, in both his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Now notice the reason why the Westminster Divines give for why, Christ, or for why Jesus is the Christ. They don't say because he's the long-awaited promised Messiah, which is true. A lot of us want to say he's the Christ because he is the one that was promised long ago. He's the seed of the woman. It is true. But here they're saying the reason why Christ is our mediator and called Christ is because he's anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure. He's set apart and fully furnished. That's very interesting, is it not? So here we learn something about Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Ghost above measure and set apart. So we turn to now the grace of Christ and the consequences of the fullness of Christ's grace. So Christ has this grace above measure. Now what's the consequence? What's the reason why he has the fullness of grace? And it's on account of this fullness that Christ has, the grace that Christ has. He's able to be our Savior, but also to distribute that grace to the members of his body, the church. That's what we're going to argue, is Christ is full of grace in order to be our Savior, in order to be the God-man, but also to, dis- to, to dispense that grace that he has to us, the church. John Owen This communication of grace unto us is unto his person and then with respect unto his office. It is in the person of Christ that all the fullness does originally dwell on the assumption of human nature into personal union with the son of God. All fullness dwells in him bodily and thereon receiving the spirit in all fullness and not by measure all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were hid in him. And he was filled with the unsearchable riches of divine grace. Here Owen is saying is Jesus Christ as man is filled above measure with grace, with grace. Now you are, and even right now, grace is being poured out into your souls. However, what I'm going to argue with Christ is Christ has the highest possible grace that one could receive. What does it mean when we speak of the grace of Christ? What do we mean when we speak of the grace of Christ? This has historically uh, been something that when we when when theologians have talked about Christology and the person of Christ. They generally would speak of this threefold division of the grace of Christ. So when we talk about the grace of Christ, there's three tiers. There's three levels that we are talking about. Number one is called the grace of union, the grace of union. In so much as the human nature of Christ is hypostatically united to the eternal son, it is formally sanctified through that union. 
It is grace because Christ's humanity is a pure gift of God. The humanity of Christ did not earn this to be hypostatically united to his divinity. But it is a pure gift of God. Humanity being united to Christ's divinity, rather his person, is a purely gift from God. Christ's humanity does not merit any sort of grace. In fact, Christ's humanity did not have an existence apart from being united to his divinity. Number two is habitual grace. And we're going to consider these two last ones, predominantly the second one, and it's this one. Habitual or sanctifying grace. Habitual or sanctifying grace. Flowing from that formal sanctification, Christ is given in his human nature the spirit without measure, such that he possesses every kind of grace without the possibility of measuring it in degree. So Christ in his humanity has every kind of grace. He has grace above measure so that so much grace that he cannot exceed in grace. But rather, the only thing that exceeds is the way in which that grace is seen outwardly to people. So Christ has sanctifying or habitual grace. Um, Saints, you right now are receiving sanctifying grace. The Lord's Supper, you receive sanctifying grace. Uh, Through prayer, you receive sanctifying grace. Okay? That doesn't mean that Christ, or rather, yeah, Christ through the Spirit infuses, he, He pours out into your soul grace. That's what's happening now. Okay? Or anytime the preached word goes forth. And the last one is capital grace. And that is the possession of the fullness of grace in his humanity, which gives him a dignity, order, and influence above all creation, particularly in the relation to humanity. That dignity is such that its nature is to overflow from Christ into humanity, particularly his body of the church. So, in other words, since Christ has the fullness of grace in his humanity, that gives him the head over the church. And because so, he takes that humanity, he takes that grace, and he gives it to us, the church. That's what Christ is doing now. Christ is giving you grace. He's giving you his grace. That's why sometimes you might hear me say in my preaching or whenever praying, uh, Lord Jesus, give to us all of what is yours. Okay. How does Christ, why does, why does Christ need the fullness of grace? So we're going to consider these three reasons, um, for our time being. Why does Jesus Christ need the fullness of grace? It would seem he doesn't need the fullness of grace because he is the eternal son. Why would the eternal son, who assumes a human nature, why would that human nature need the fullness of grace since he already is God? The problem with that though is you might diminish the humanity of Christ, as if it's an afterthought. And because he is God, um, his humanity does not need anything. Okay? And that is not true. Christ needs the fullness of grace, number one. Christ needed the, uh, humanity needed the fullness of grace so that his humanity, and hear me, hear me now, can be a proper instrument of his divinity. Again, Christ needed the fullness of grace so that his humanity 
can be a proper instrument of his divinity. In other words, the word, the second person of the Trinity, the divine logos, used his human nature to carry out our salvation and to do divine things. Again, the second person of the Trinity assumed a true humanity so that through his humanity, he can accomplish our salvation. And that humanity is an instrument, used as an instrument. Christ's divine and human nature produces a single work. For example, Christ heals with a touch. He heals people by touching them. Well, when he heals people, who's healing them? Well, Christ is a man, and it's a human touch that heals a human person. But, but humans do not have the ability to heal. Humans can't heal. It is beyond the nature of a human to heal another human. So how is it that Christ can heal with a human touch? Thomas Aquinas says, Healing the leopard is a proper work of a divine operation, while touching him is the proper work of a human nature. So the touch, right? Uh, and through the touch, his, his, the power of divinity um, 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 you know, is channeling through along with the Spirit, of course. Both operations concur in one work. So, insofar as one nature acts in communion with the other. We can say that Christ's two natures are always conjoined to perform one single act. Example, uh, when, we, when we talk about instruments, an axe does not have the power in of itself to cut down a tree. Right? If you left an axe on the wall uh, and you said, axe, go cut me down a tree. An axe can't do that, right? What would an axe need to do? An axe needs to be conjoined with a user, right? It needs to be yielded by someone. So when the axe is conjoined with me, the user, pretend this is an axe, the axe now, along with the user, can cut down a tree. So we have the axe doing an act, we have me doing an act, but it's doing one act. And what is, what is that? The tree cutting down. It's a conjoined act. We have two parties coming together to do one thing. That is the cutting down of the tree. An instrument then is used by a user and can participate in the properties and efficacy of that user. This microphone is an instrument. For what? So that I can communicate to you. Your chair you're sitting on is a is an instrument to do what? For you to sit down on. We know of these things, right? We, we, we use them all the time. Uh, William Theologians has summed up this well. He says, instrumental causality is present when through the impulse and direction of a superior cause, an inferior cause is elevated above its own level. Let me give you an example. Again, back to the axe. The axe is subordinate to me. Right? The axe is not above me. My nature is above the axe. However, I can take the axe and do something with the axe that is above the axe's nature, and that is the what? To cut down trees and do many things. Without me, the axe can't do nothing. It needs me. Right? And may capable of producing an effect that transcends its proper capacity taken alone. Again, an axe taken alone cannot cut down a tree. It needs me. Instrumental causes are moved movers 
which can create effects only insofar as they are moved themselves by a higher cause, as the paintbrush is moved by the artist's hand and mind. So, again, another example here. When we think of a paintbrush, a paintbrush, and if you dip paint on, on the, the bristles, it cannot in of itself paint you a Picasso. But what does it need? It needs me. And what do I need? I need an intellect. I need imagination in order for all of it to come together. Another example we see uh, we can use is a searing hot knife. Uh, by virtue of its own nature, the knife bears properties of sharpness. But by virtue of the heat, it receives something that it doesn't have. And what is that? It can burn. However, there is a problem with the axe and the searing knife example. Christ's humanity is not an axe or like an axe. And Christ's humanity is not like um, a searing hot knife. But Christ's humanity is an animate object. It has life in it. An axe does not have life in it. A searing hot knife does not have a life in it. But Christ's humanity has a will. Christ's humanity, his human actions, they genuinely produce the effects proper to human nature. Jesus Christ, as man, writes on the dust. Christ takes his hand, his finger, and writes on the dust. He overturns tables with his hands. He touches people with human hands. And what we are saying with Christ's humanity is Christ, even as man, never does anything alone. His humanity does not will on its own terms. Because Jesus' human will is conjoined to his divine personality. This is great news for us. Because Christ's humanity is the very humanity of the eternal word. That Christ in his humanity, or rather Christ in his person, he's, he's not, there's not two things going on. There's not a tug of war to where Christ's humanity wants to do this and his divinity wants to do this. Christ really wants to save people according to his divinity and his humanity. He, he, wants to, he doesn't want to save anyone. He wants to just save himself. That's not what's going on in Christ. Christ always wills as man what he wills as God. Always. Such that the two operations remain distinct, but his human will always follows his divine will. One theologian said rightly, the actions of the human nature are not simply the actions of a separate instrument, but properly attributed to the word himself as the subject who was acting in and through that nature. So other, in human nature. In other words, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, is the one that's acting and he acts through his humanity. But in addition to Christ's humanity being the very humanity of the word, being an instrument of his divinity, we also see that our Lord's humanity, therefore his human will, was supernaturally elevated. This is the second reason why Christ needed the fullness of grace, so that his humanity may be divinized. Maximus Confessor, the great 6th century church theologian. He was in truth and properly a human being. To this, his natural will bears witness in his plea to be spared from death. And again, that the human will is wholly deified. In its agreement with the divine will itself, since it is eternally moved and shaped by it and in accordance with it. 
What Maximus is saying here is Christ's humanity being deified means that it's supernaturally elevated. It is, it is given a gift of grace. And one example we see of this is in our Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maximus just talked about this. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, we spoke about this already in our Christology lessons. But what's happening at this scene? Uh, Thomas Aquinas says rightly, in saying, let this cup pass from me, he indicated the movement of his lower appetite and natural desire, whereby all naturally shrink from death and desire life. So what Aquinas is saying is, Jesus is not saying anything wrong or bad to desire life. And in saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but thou will, he gives expression to the movement of his higher reason, which looks on all things as comprised under the ordination of divine wisdom. Again, Christ, what he's feeling is that he does not want to die. And that's fine. That's not sinful for the eternal son as man to say, I do not want to die. Spare my life, God. But he does not allow, Jesus does not allow his emotions to override what is true and good. And that is, if I die, I bring salvation to my people. We know this well in our own lives, right, saints? When we say to ourselves, I should not eat that last bowl of cereal. Right? Your, your, your reason's telling you if you eat that last bowl of cereal, you're going to get a stomachache. But what, it, what are your emotions telling you? What are you feeling? Man, I think I can do one more, though. So what happens is you allow your what's traditionally your lower appetites, your 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 emotions, what you are feeling to override what's objectively true. And that is I will get sick. Jesus Christ does not fall into that category. At every moment of Christ's life, what he feels is overrode. By reason, and his reasons always directed to the will of God. Always. Saints, that is what God is doing to us now. That is what God is doing to us now. Anytime there's a temptation that's brought to us, we now have the power to not allow our emotions to override the word of God. And what God says. <clears throat> Christ was not, Christ's will was not subject to feelings and emotions. Praise God for that. Christ very well could have disappeared into the night at the Garden of Gethsemane and not undergone the passion. He very well could have, um, he very well could have not undergone the cross and all of that. But he does not allow Again, uh, his emotions to override what is true. We see this throughout the life of Christ. John 5, 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most surely I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. John five thirty. I can do nothing. I, I myself can do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. Again, what Christ is saying here is, what I feel and what I think is always subject 
to what God's word says. What what does God say, right? Although he has two natures, human and divine, they're never at odds with one another. Christ's humanity and his divinity are never at odds with one another. And again, part of the reason is because Christ's humanity, from the moment of conception, was supernaturally elevated. Christ's humanity was supernaturally elevated. That is to say, from the moment of conception in the virgin's womb, our Lord's humanity received a gift of grace. And not just the grace that maybe John the Baptist had, the grace that you and I have, but he received the fullness of grace. The fullness of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. How, what do we read this in Scripture? John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah 11.2 And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, these are the gifts that the Spirit... Traditionally, medieval theologians have called... Um, this type of grace in Christ, habitual grace or sanctifying grace, habitual grace or sanctifying grace. Let me just break this down for you quickly. Habitual grace has two aspects to it. What do we mean when we say habitual? Well, a habit is a quality that a thing has that makes it either well or ill disposed to an end and is determined by its object. So, we usually, or all of us, have either a habit of virtue or a habit of vice. Habits essentially are this. They dispose you to do something when you're presented with an object. For instance, if you present to me an in-and-out burger, I have a habit, whether you want to call it virtue or vice, I call it virtue, of eating the hamburger. Okay? When I was younger, you present a basketball in front of me. I have the habit of doing what? Taking the basketball and dribbling it. So I am, when objects are presented to me, I have a disposition to do always the same thing. You know of that well, right? Um, and again, you are either disposed to do a virtue, which is a good thing, or a vice, a bad thing. Uh, we, who used to be sinners in Adam, used to have a habit of vice, where we could not do uh, virtue, but it was always the vice. Second, grace. What is grace? Well, grace um, indeed is an unmerited is unmerited favor by God, undoubtedly. But for our for our consideration, grace is a special love of God where he draws a rational creature above the conditions of its nature to participate in divine goodness. Again, grace is a special love of God where he draws the rational creature, you, above the condition of its nature, above humanity, to participate in his divine goodness. In other words, when God gives grace to a creature, he gives it a special gift of his love to the creature's soul, to create a supernatural habit. One theologian says, God inclines and moves the creature to elicit the acts by that habit that enable him to reach a supernatural end. Let me give you an example. Before you were saved, 
Did you have faith in God? No. What do you need? You need a supernatural habit. What is that? You need faith. God gives to you faith. Does everyone have faith in God? No. So faith then is a virtue. Faith then is a supernatural gift of God. He gives to you to do what? For you to rise above your intellect and will to do what? To know the truth of God, your intellect, and to move your will to love God. That's what God does to you. If we want to talk about metaphysically doing, uh, uh, when, you, when you come to believing in him. He gives you something that you need, that you don't have, and if you, and if you didn't have it, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to come to him, and that is faith. It's a, it's a supernatural habit that God gives to you to reach a supernatural end. Saints, humanity needs a supernatural habit, a supernatural disposition in order to do the will of God. Without a supernatural disposition, you cannot do the will of God. In other words, without the Holy Spirit, you cannot do the will of God. God must supernaturally elevate man's powers, which is the intellect and the will. You must believe something that others don't believe. What is that? A supernatural truth. That I am a sinner in Adam and I need forgiveness of sins. That God is one in Trinity. That Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. You know, saints, those are supernatural truths. And what do we need to believe those things? To affirm those things? Supernatural aid. We need supernatural grace and supernatural habits in order for us to believe a supernatural truth. That is why, saints, when you are telling your friends, and I say this all the time, when you're trying to tell your friends about Jesus Christ and the gospel, and they don't believe because they can't believe. Their mind and their will needs to be elevated. It needs to go above nature to believe God's word. And what we are saying with Jesus Christ is what we have now as Christians, Jesus Christ has the fullness of it in his humanity. The fullness of habitual and sanctifying grace. So that every moment in Christ's life, he as man does the will of God and performs supernatural acts. You might disagree with me here. That's fine. We'll talk about it later. This is why Jesus Christ in his humanity could not sin. Because he has the fullness of grace. This is why Christ in his humanity could not get sick. He has the fullness of grace. Our Lord, from the moment of conception, received the highest possible grace in which the Holy Spirit, who is like an infinite river, overflows upon the humanity of Christ. <clears throat> John Owen, the human nature of Christ, and we're almost done, the human nature of Christ being thus formed in the womb by the creating act of the Holy Spirit was in the instant of his conception, sanctified and filled with grace. His nature, therefore, as miraculously created in the manner described, was absolutely innocent, spotless, and free from sin. But this was not all. It was by the Holy Spirit positively endowed with all grace, and thereof it was afterward only capable of farther degrees as to actual exercise, but not in any new kind. I just said that, right? 
that Christ couldn't receive more grace, but rather he can only exercise and show outwardly that grace toward others. That's what Owen is saying, essentially. And this work of sanctification or the original fusion of all grace into the human nature of Christ was the immediate work of the Holy Spirit. How does Christ receive this grace? By the Spirit. Which was necessary unto him for let the natural, and this is important here, for let the natural faculties of the soul, the mind, will, and affections be pure, innocent, and undefiled as they cannot be otherwise immediately created of God. Yet there is not enough to enable the rational creature to live to God, much less was there, was it um, at all, for Jesus Christ. This is very bold of Owen here. Because what Owen is saying is, a human nature, a human being, let's say he's created pure, let's say he's created innocent and undefiled. Even in that person, in that created uh, uh, sense, cannot live unto God. Than what we need. Owen says, there is moreover required thereunto supernatural endowments of grace, super added unto the natural faculties of our souls. Humans, apart from God, cannot do the will of God. Essentially, what Owen is saying you need a supernatural gift of grace. Even if that human is pure, undefiled, they still need grace. They still need God. This is why the whole Christian message does not say you can save yourself. But you need God to aid you. You need God to give you grace. If we live unto God, there must be a principle of spiritual life in us as well as of a natural life. Essentially, if we are to live unto God, we need God to live in us. If we want to live unto God... We need the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son to live in us. Lastly, Christ needed the fullness of grace so that we can receive grace. This really gets into the implications of this lesson, and we're going to look at more uh, of this next Sunday evening. Um, I mean, I think the second point is are much. there's much implications for us, but it's not enough for Jesus to have the fullness of grace in his humanity if he cannot distribute it to the members of his body. And this is called the capital grace of Christ. Since Christ has the fullness of grace, he has preeminence over all, including the church. And because it is so, he takes that grace and he gives it to us. Three passages of scripture. Colossians 1, chapter 8, Colossians 1, 18 through 19. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to the f- have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Ephesians 1.22, And he put all things and subjected under his feet and made him head over all things to the church. So here, we're speaking of Christ being the head of the church. But what about, what about us receiving, because Christ is the head of the church, grace? John 1.14 and 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and here it is here. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of the grace that Christ has in his humanity we receive it. 
This verse speaks of two things. Number one, Christ is the origin of every spiritual grace. And number two, Christ is the, um, the grace of Christ is dispensed to us through him and from him. Right now, and that's hard because, you know, we don't see it actually, but right now, from the fullness of his humanity, the Spirit takes that grace and he's pouring it into your soul. That's what happens. I mean, this is what we call, this is the means of grace. And that's what essentially what we are talking about. Because our Lord's humanity has the highest possible grace, Christ's merit is passed to those united to him. All of what Christ does for us, he gives to us. He does not keep it to himself. Why? Because Christ does not need salvation. Christ is not in need of a savior. Christ does merit, as we learned last week. What does he merit? Merit. Well, he merits the glory of the glory of a body. He merits a, a body that's immutable. He merit. He receives um, the fullness of sanctification. Well, we are being sanctified in the likeness of Christ. I mean, when we talk about when Paul talks about being in the likeness of Christ, it's it's a, it's a wonderful exchange, right? Not even exchange, but Christ gives to us so that we can be a mirror back to him. So, so we can represent and, and be the very image um, of his glorious humanity, of his glorious person. Christ, um, we receive grace from Christ's humanity by the Spirit. In closing, one theologian said, the whole human race depends on Christ first possessing grace as head in order that they might in turn possess it as a body. And this is the important and the great truth of this lesson is that Jesus Christ as the head, just as um, a father is the head of the household, let's, let's act like, you know, hypothetically, if the father is a wealthy man, once he dies, he dispenses that wealth to the members of his body, his family. Well, Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, dispenses the grace that he has to the members of his church so that we make up one mystical person. We are the body and he is the head. Let's pray.